Welcome to MQ's Open Mind, the show where we look at the science behind mental health and its potential to transform lives. I'm Hannah Myerson. Depression. It's one of the most common mental illnesses and currently affects one in 10 people in the UK. But what if science could help us find out who's more likely to develop depression? One of MQ's biggest projects is trying to identify the factors that put certain people at high risk. This could not only create a tool to screen people for depression, but ultimately help us find ways to intervene as soon as possible. Helen, one of the project's lead researchers, joins me for today's episode, along with John, an MQ ambassador who's had depression since the age of five. So thank you very much for joining me, both of you. I first wanted to ask you what depression means to you. So if you could describe depression in one sentence, what would you say? John, I'm going to begin with you. So my my two-word answer to this is grey water, and that's just reflective of my personal experience of what that feels like. But also my my senses, of course, is so different for everyone, but but that's where I come from. I'm going to just give a medical definition because I think that's easiest. So I guess uh, medically we think about depression um, as a really persistent depressive mood, so that can be feeling incredibly sad, can also be um, being very irritable or feeling very empty. Um, and just having a real loss of pleasure and it comes with lots of other symptoms and experiences as well but as John said everyone experiences it slightly differently. Thank you for that I think John that probably brings us really nicely onto you and your own experience of depression so obviously you use the words grey water to describe what it feels like I wondered if you could elaborate on that a bit and talk about how you first experienced depression maybe how that feeling has progressed as the years have gone on or changed yeah sure so I can remember being about five and for me it first became apparent that there was something going on although obviously at the time I didn't really have a narrative for this um, when I just really couldn't sleep like could not sleep could not drift off just awake 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 but at the same time consistently low energy you know just a lack of satisfaction with everything I was doing food or you know playing with my friends or whatever it might be just having something that was missing almost, like a quality of pleasure or quality of enjoyment that just wasn't there. Um, And that's continued since then. Obviously, as I grew up and I grew older, I realized that not only was this not something that I was alone in, but that lots of people around me actually were having experiences like these. Um, And so I, I think for me, the thing that changed most over time is not necessarily the experience of it, but my understanding of what was happening. There's a a chemical thing happening to my brain and my body right now, which is not unique to me, which is not um, without end. You know, it tends to come in peaks and troughs, and it tends to come associated with certain events or when I'm under certain kinds of pressure or, you know, things like that. And so that understanding, for me at least, made things a lot easier because being able to see, you know, the end of a tunnel, even if you know there may be another tunnel further down the road, means that there is respite coming, even if you're not seeing it right away. Yeah. So you're 29 now, and it has been 24 years since you first experienced symptoms of depression. Yes. You've spoken a lot about how you've now come to understand what it means. What did it feel like when you were younger? Was there a point where you realised that actually what you might be experiencing wasn't what everyone else was experiencing at that time. I think I think initially because I did feel like this was this was just me, you know, just something like broken in the code that kind of defined who I was as a person. I think there was a lot more shame and guilt about that, you know, of 
oh, everyone, it's, you know, it's time to take part in this sort of fun thing. And I'm there feeling like I've got a head full of rain clouds. You know, why can't I enjoy this? What the hell is wrong with me? Um, to, yeah, I guess, you know, being um, a teenager when I think lots of people perhaps start having quite difficult emotional experiences or at least expressing them more often, um, understanding that the sort of kindness you would then show to someone else having those experiences are things that you should really expect for yourself. So if I, you know, had a, a friend or, you know, someone I was at school with or even a family member, um, it's been true for me, who is clearly in a difficult time that you would extend that sort of that extra bit of rope to say it's all right take your time there's no need to be 100% all of the time because frankly none of us are and then reflecting that back on myself to say why on earth am I holding myself to a standard that doesn't exist and I would never hold someone else to and I think that's the shift that took place for me and and that's I think being a consistent part of my sort of mental health experience is understanding, you know, we, we're all on a number of different sort of spectra at any given moment and being empathetic to understand that, you know, this person who I'm dealing with, it may not be that they're trying to ruin my day or be mean to me or not be helpful or, or not even reply to my email, something as petty as that. It may be that they're dealing with a number of different things. And I think just psychologically by saying to myself, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give myself the benefit of the doubt. It just makes those sorts of things, whether you're experiencing them or you're experiencing them by proxy through someone else, just easier. I think it's interesting that you touched on the idea of being empathetic because increasingly, and I think this is one of my bugbears, is that we hear expressions thrown around like, you know, I'm so OCD, I'm so depressed. And, and actually with those conversations happening much more, I think it's important that we can make that distinction and use language really carefully around those sorts of words. So with that in mind and the point you made about understanding what someone's going through, I wondered if, and this is a challenging task, but if there was any way you could describe what it actually feels like when you feel that way, what happens you know, in your body, what happens in your mind. Yeah, it's a very weird feeling for me. And the reason I use that um, two-word phrase, grey water, at the beginning is it feels almost like I'm underwater. Um, it, it feels like it's harder to move. It feels like it's harder to hear. It feels like it's harder to speak. Things take on a very kind of strange quality. You know, everything becomes, emotionally at least, a, a bit sort of washed out and muted. I can hear it when I'm talking to people. The timbre of my voice changes. It's low mood. It's low energy. Um, it's a, a really pronounced irritability and my patience goes to absolutely nothing. Things which ordinarily I, I would just sort of ride over all of a sudden become these big obstacles, these big impossible looming tasks like you wouldn't believe. Um, and it's always so funny to me when I come out of that feeling because it's, it's ridiculous how small everything becomes in retrospect. And yeah, and, and it's it's something that I also, I become very conscious of people seem to almost react to me differently. Um, and I don't know if that's uh, because, you know, I do change and my demeanor changes, or I'm just receiving their reactions differently, or actually if it's both. Um, but I, you know, I'll find things like just having a normal, relaxed conversation with someone really hard, um, and really hard to be responsive to them and to pay attention to what they're saying. Um, that's the other thing that my attention will totally go, you know, simple instructions or, you know, a, a three digit number or what's happening tomorrow or what I did a week ago, all of that stuff 
disappears. So it's a mixture of different things, but I think altogether that the kind of package is a lot like what Helen described really is, you know, I get that kind of low mood, that just low energy, um, and my sort of emotional balance goes completely out of whack. I think that's really helpful because it can be difficult to support someone when you're not quite sure what they're going through. So I think to just not diminish those those small hurdles, as you mentioned, that become really huge in those moments is, is really important. Uh, obviously, Helen is here to talk about her project, which is looking at the different kind of risk factors that might be associated with uh, young people developing depression. And John, I wanted to ask you if, in retrospect, reflecting on your life, do you think there are any things that jump out at you as potential risk factors, ways that you might have grown up, the environment you were in, uh, even genetics? Yeah, genetics, actually. I mean, it's, it's funny. Some of the experiences that helped me understand this were things that my parents were going through. Um, my uh, mother has had her own sort of troubles with this and my dad has in, in different ways. And although I have no way of knowing this for sure, given the sort of expression in various members of my family, I think there is clearly something going on there. Um, we have all had such similar experiences and, you know, really sort of mirrored, um, especially at the times of our lives they've been happening in some cases. So I think I think that's one thing. Um, I don't know about the sort of environmental impact because, frankly, lots of the things which I understand, you know, put you more at risk um, in terms of, you know, having decent housing and access to green space and, you know, proper food and all those sorts of things were all there. I, I get the sense that it's a sort of genetic luck of the draw with me, frankly, and it, it seems like whatever happened during my childhood, I find it hard to imagine that that wouldn't have been there. You know, there wasn't a triggering event or um, some sort of cataclysm or anything like that which which spurred this on. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I've, I've just sort of won or lost that genetic lottery a little bit. And I know you mentioned earlier about having empathy and being able to take a step back. Is there anything else that you have seen over the years that has helped you to kind of manage it? Um, for me, doing stuff which allows my brain to sort of slow down and relax is really important. So I, I'm a big reader. I think because it's totally immersive for me, I'm totally transported out of my own brain for you know however long I can focus on a book. And that period of I'm not here inside my head is really, really important. Um, as much as I don't enjoy doing it, exercise, it turns out, is really important for me, and I wish it wasn't, but it is. Um, and of course, like all people, when I'm feeling that way, it's that's when it's hardest to do it and to motivate and to, you know, get up and go outside. Um, but I do try and do that. And then, you know, all the sort of standard things around self-care of, you know, consciously reminding myself that this is happening, not letting it feel like it's a new normal, eating properly... And increasingly, as I've gotten old, recognising that other people around me can help with this. You know, I think a lot of people instinctively try and kind of grip the wheel tighter and say, I'm going to steer myself out of this, which is certainly for me, at least not a good idea. Um, so just being really, really open and saying, you know, this is not a good day or week for me. Here's what I need. And more often than not, people are very forthcoming. I mean, I'm lucky I've, you know, I've got an amazing wife who, if I say to her, this is this is a this is a dark day for me and I might not be up to going out to something or seeing these people who will kind of be there for me. So that's that's huge. Yeah. And that brings us on to Helen. So Helen, I first wanted to ask you about what motivated you to get into mental health research in the first place. So what field you specialise in and why? That um, sounded like a blind date question, didn't it? Mm. What motivated <laughs> you and why? <laughs> so I have uh, Different people in my family have different mental health 
problems. Um, so I had a, an uncle who had schizophrenia and had it from when he was an adolescent. Um, and also two members of my close family also have had depression at different points. So I think as I was growing up, it was something I was kind of aware of, um, aware that people had different types of emotional experiences, different things going on with them. Um, and I did an undergraduate degree in psychology. So I was just fascinated by what makes people tick. Um, and during that, I did a, a placement year um, with a community mental health um, team. Um, and I got uh, the opportunity to spend a bit of time on a psychiatric ward and, and actually sit in ward rounds. It was a really eye-opening experience. And I think the thing that really struck me was that several of the people um, that came to the, the ward round to, to talk to the psychiatrist uh, were the same age as me. Um, and had obviously had completely different types of experiences and ended up um, being sectioned, being in um, a ward and being incredibly unwell. And one of the um, young people I saw um, had uh, psychosis, so they were hearing voices, um, and another person I saw um, was incredibly depressed and very suicidal. Um, and I think what struck me at that point was just trying to get my head around how how did their trajectory differ so much from mine? How did, how did they get to this point? And really wanting to understand what was it that got them to that point and how could I potentially prevent other people from getting to that point so early on so that's what really kind of motivated me to want to go into this area of research. And from there how did you come because you're one of the principal investigators on the IDEA project I know that you were involved in kind of forming it from the ground up so what were the thought processes that you all went through? Yeah, so we were part of a what's called a sand pit, so <laughs> not what literally sand playing pit? with sand. <laughs> MQ brought together lots of different researchers from different parts of the world, um, from different disciplines, different different backgrounds, um, and basically shut us away for three days and said, right, <laughs> there's some money on the table, go away, uh, fight it out and work out what you want to do um, with this what, around youth mental health. Um, so as part of that process, I was uh, incredibly fortunate to come together with a group of people from lots of different countries um, and started to think about what could we do um, that was really important. And we decided to focus um, particularly on depression, just because we know it's actually the leading cause of disability around the world. So on a global scale, actually, that's probably the most important mental health problem um, to tackle. So it brought us together, it got us to think about that and, and as John was saying, we know that once um, somebody develops depression that often it can be chronic, they can experience it for a long period of time and it can have a big effect on their whole life. Um, and so we really wanted to think about what could we do to really help identify adolescents particularly who are often most at, uh, at risk, what could we do to identify which ones were going to go on and have the most likelihood of, of developing depression and what could we do then to, to intervene and prevent that? So it's a very different project. As you've both mentioned, it's global. You're working with a team of researchers around the world. What about the project and its potential is the most exciting thing for you? So I think for me it's exciting to think about what we might be able to do that might be able to have an impact on a much bigger scale than just our normal narrow focus on the UK. So the project involves um, researchers from the UK, but from Brazil, Nepal, Nigeria, and also from the, the US. Um, and obviously those are hugely different types of, of parts of the world. And a lot of my research today has, has really just been very focused on the UK or other kind of high income countries. And these other countries, you know, low and middle income countries, have such diverse experiences. So for in Nepal, for instance, with a huge um, civil war, um, lots of uh, children were brought into the army as child soldiers and have very, very different types of experiences, really quite diverse. 
and, and therefore have much higher levels of, of depression in those countries. How, how can we find a way to you know, identify which adolescents are at risk and, and intervene in such diverse contexts? And John, I wondered what it is about the project that gives you personally hope for the future. Yeah, I think the thing I, I really admire about it is that it is international. I think the discussions around mental health are very much couched in, you know, we talk about depression in developed nations, we talk about the sort of Western Europe, American, like anxiety, depression, cultural thing that's happening. And my sense is, of course, that this is this is much more of a human problem, um, that of course there are a range of factors and certain places see expression for different reasons than other places, but that actually untangling that web and understanding what's really going on, how do those factors play off each other, you know, how might your risk in one place differ to another, and also what can we learn from places, you know, that will experience these problems but deal with them with far less resources and have to be far more sort of crafty about how they, they you know, they respond to this. I think that's a really important thing as well. So it's looking at different factors. I know some of them are things uh, like biology, environment. What are the other factors that we are <laughs> going to be looking at? Um, so what we had decided to focus on initially was um, thinking about how we might use this information eventually as a potential screening tool in adolescence. And so we were thinking it might be something you might use in a GP surgery or in a school or something you know, in the wider population. So we wanted actually to focus on risk factors that were going to be easily attainable um, and also from the adolescents themselves. So things like gender, so we know women are much more likely to go on and develop um, depression, obviously not always. Um, we also looked at things like whether they were a minority or a majority ethnic group, um, things about how their relationships were with their family, whether they'd experienced things like maltreatment in childhood, whether they got into a lot of fights, had other um, problems. Um, so we started with those factors. Um, and we've been looking at them in, in these different countries. Um, so we started looking at them in the Brazilian context and used um, existing data from a really large birth cohort of children. They've been following all the way up um, into early adulthood um, to see if we could, if we, if we put all of them together, can we predict which of those adolescents go on and get depression, um, which we can to a reasonable degree of accuracy. Um, and then we've looked at that in, in other contexts. So can we see that in the UK context, does that the same set of factors work um, and does it in, in, an, in the Nepali context, for instance? Um, so yeah, so we've been looking at those factors um, initially, and then what we're doing in a different part of the project is looking at brain scanning, um, looking at um, inflammatory markers as well, um, and a variety of other things, and we will incorporate genetics at, at some point as well. And obviously you've got a really ambitious aim at the end of the project, which is to hopefully create some sort of screening tool that people can use um, across the world. What are the steps that you now need to take in order to get there, and what's that timeline looking like? So the initial project that we have um, funded by MQ is just two years. So it's a lot of different things happening <laughs> simultaneously. Um, so I think for this um, initial project, what we're really hoping to do is just get to a point where we have got a really good idea of um, what these risk factors are, how they come together and combine, um, and how those work in those different contexts. So we wouldn't assume you're going to get a universal score that's going to work everywhere. As, as John was saying, contexts are hugely different. We've got places that have been exposed to a lot of war, places with very different um, levels of poverty and other types of, of cultural um, experiences as well. So trying to get a sense of how we need to um, 
uh, adjust those risk factors, what other factors might be involved in those particular contexts, so we get a sense of what might go into a screening tool, how that might work in, in those different contexts. And so after that, um, what we're starting to lay the groundwork for during this project is to also, which we think is really important, it's great to, for us to develop a screening tool, but what on earth would that mean? How would we do that? The idea of that um, sounds great to be able to detect people and intervene, but actually what would it mean for an adolescent, so someone who's 15, to be told you have an 80% chance of developing depression. What would that mean for them? What would it mean for their family? These, I mean, it's quite controversial. We, we're used to actually thinking about these kind of tools in physical health. So, so I turned 40 recently and, and I got invited and I had to go for a health screen with my GP and they calculate my risk of getting cardiovascular disease, of having a heart attack in the next 10 years. Um, and thankfully my percentage was very low and I was very happy with that but what if it had been higher but I think we feel more comfortable in a physical health okay I've got a high score on that I need to change my diet I need to do more exercise we, we feel kind of comfortable with that but when we're talking about mental health I think we and particularly for adolescents I mean we might be able to say well you've got a 40% chance of getting depression in the next five years I mean, how do we deal with that? As John said, is it going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy? Are their parents going to suddenly change their behaviour and everything's going to be really difficult? Are they going to be more stigmatised because other people in the school know and they treat them differently? Um, it, it, there are so many different potential things. So what we're trying to do towards the end of this project is um, talk to adolescents, um, talk to parents, talk to also people who might administer the screening tool, so teachers, um, GPs, social workers, all sorts of um, practitioners um, to get their opinions on on how might you do that sensitively, what might it mean, what might we need to put in place to make sure actually it was, was going to be helpful for people. We think it's really important to identify people and find ways to intervene, but we've got to make sure we don't make it worse, yeah. which is always the, the issue. You can, you can even, though, imagine a scenario where it's empowering. You know, if... if the narrative around um, mental health was like physical health in that, you know, we, we all have a responsibility to take care of ourselves and to make the best decisions given our own, what we're predisposed to, the limitations we have. Um, you know, and if someone was to say to you, well, you're more likely to develop depression or anxiety, you are. This is an opportunity for you to steer the trajectory of your life and to be a healthier, happier version of yourself. Here are things you can do. Here is a group of people going through something similar. Um, so it might be, you know, there's there's a world in which yes, this is this is sort of condemning people and saying you're you're part of that unlucky group. Isn't that terrible? But there's also a world in which, with the right narrative and the right kind of support around it, you're actually saying this is an opportunity for you to make better decisions. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking now, you know, if someone had said to me as a 15 year old, you're more likely to have, you know, experiences of chronic depression. Well, first of all, I, I would have said, yeah, no. Um, but second of all, I, I think at that point it would have given me a license to take steps to, um, to maybe take better care of myself. And I think it probably would have made me a nicer teenager. So, yeah, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways it can go, but I can see a world in which that's really positive. And that's that's fantastic to hear. I absolutely agree, and I think that's what we would aim for, and we really want to, yeah, find ways to if we can identify adolescents who are most at risk, can we really target interventions at them, help to support them to actually take control of their destiny mm. as they go forward. And I think for us, the other issue is that we need to make sure that the if we can identify adolescents at, at, at really high risk of developing depression, have we actually got the resources 
and the know-how to actually intervene to help them. But I'm kind of conscious that we need to make sure we can develop those and test those before we start telling people they're at risk and then say, actually, there's nothing we can help you with at this point. <laughs> we need to make sure we've got everything else in place as well. Yeah, that it's, that it's actionable, that mm. there's something yeah. you can do. Moving on, I know that we are bombarded with statistics. I mean, we've already mentioned three in this podcast alone. But I wanted to ask both of you if there was a statistic that you hear about depression and particularly speaks to you personally and something that you find really gets to the root of the issue. Yeah, so I, Helen will correct me if this is not accurate, hopefully, um, because I saw a few contradicting sort of numbers around this, but the effect of depression on average lifespan which the stat I saw was something like 7 to 11 years, chronic depression. Does that sound roughly right? Yeah. yeah. Um, which I think for me is a stat that gets scarier the older you get because, you know, we think about adolescents having experience of this stuff and you think about the whole rest of their life. But I think as you get older, you realise it takes such a long time to get good at anything, to be uh, a real participant into society, to make a contribution, you know, that the the hours it takes to really become a, a master of something or to um, really become at home somewhere or to really love someone, have them be your family, a decade is a really long time to lose. And so I just think that that's, that's one of those things where the more you think about it, the more sort of haunting it becomes. And I was going to say something um, very similar, just at the other end of the spectrum, I guess, to a degree. So just thinking about um, that some people who experience depression in, in the kind of more extreme cases often have thoughts of suicide and attempt um, suicide. Um, and actually 800,000 people a year die of suicide across the world. Um, and it's actually, suicide is actually the second leading cause um, of death in young people in 15 to, to 29 year olds. And just, I mean, that really strikes me that actually it's, it, there's so much we could do. It's, you know, some other things are so difficult to deal with. We can't necessarily stop wars or famines. But actually, if we could really help young people either not have depression in the first place or deal with their depression better, we could actually prevent such a huge number of, of really, really unnecessary early deaths. So not only would it be fantastic to be able to make sure people have that extra 10 years of, of life at the end, but it would be nice if they even had the beginning um, few decades as, as well. Yeah, it's, it's that loss, isn't it? That mm. that just in, incredible, sort of almost invisible loss of, of human stuff. Yeah. Um, we did a shout out on social media to our supporters to see if they had any questions for you both. Um, and there were a few themes that came up. One of the first was this idea that a lot of the media tells us depression is caused by an imbalance of chemicals in the brain. And someone actually questioned, I suppose this speaks really nicely to what we're talking about today. Is that the sole explanation or are there other things like life experiences, situations that we're put in that can also contribute to that? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, depression is, a, is quite a complicated um, culmination of kind of social factors, psychological factors and biological factors. And those do differ depending on the person. So one of the um, largest triggers, if you like, of depression is experiencing a really stressful life event. So that can be um, somebody dying, it can be losing your job, um, it can be being exposed to, to war, it can be um, experiencing um, abuse or, or being on the receiving end of violence of some kind. Um, but as John said, not everybody has those experiences. It is one of the biggest um, triggers, but it isn't 
clearly for everybody. And the same thing would be said of, of family history. So these things are not disconnected. They're all interconnected in, in some way. Um, so yeah, so it's a quite a complex, but it also does depend on the person. So different things can, can trigger it differently for different people. The next question leads quite nicely on from that, because what another supporter asked was, is depression becoming a problem only now in this 21st century world with this pressure of, you know, having to work really hard, a lot of people working multiple jobs? Did these problems exist centuries ago and we just didn't talk about it? Or is it actually this idea that modern life is potentially building on those triggers? I think with, as with most mental health problems, they have been around for probably as long as humans have existed because we all have emotions um, and um, interact with other people. So those things all affect us and we'll experience those in different ways. I think for me, thinking about that, you know, more than 300 million people around the world experience depression from really different, diverse contexts means that it's not just our, what we think of as our modern world and our pressures. You know, people in very different situations experience different things um, and are still having high risk of depression. And particularly in more extreme situations like in Nepal, for instance, where they have had civil war, um, their rates of depression are much higher than ours are. And that's not surprising. It's very traumatic and very stressful, you know, particularly because we know the peak of, of depression is in adolescence. Actually, 90% of the world's adolescents live in, in low and middle income countries. They don't live in high-income countries. And so they have the biggest burden of depression, much bigger than, than we do. So I think it, certainly some of the things that we experience now um, aren't helpful, and probably we have less support structures and other things in place that mean depression may feel more prevalent than it was before, but I think it has always been around. And we need to just think as, as times change how we help and support people in, in different ways, given the different situations they're in. Yeah, um, I, I think it's, it's an interesting idea that modern life is somehow singularly mm. difficult or stressful because I, I don't think you have to work your imagination too hard to say, well, if you were living a thousand years ago, you know, with a life expectancy of what your late twenties or thirties or whatever, um, working in a field in, in a, you know, more aggressively stratified society than perhaps today, even though today's society is aggressively stratified, that there's uh, there's plenty of environmental factors there if you want to find them. I almost wonder if it, it seems like it's the other way, that actually if you do have a roof over your head and you do have food to eat and you're not, let's say, running from conflict, um, it is much easier to have the time to sit and reflect on things like how am I feeling, how am I doing today, how are the people around me doing when you're not saddled with these questions of survival, which, you know, for, for a lot of people globally now and certainly even more so in the past, was the dominating thing. You know, I've had the luxury of actually being able to ask myself, how am I doing? And to investigate that question in a slightly navel-gazing kind of way. And the fact that we are more uh, open and we have more vocabulary about this stuff now, I don't think necessarily speaks to there being a, a problem that's growing in parallel with that, but more just the fact that we're lucky enough to be able to recognize it and to have the time and resources to focus on it. Um, many are not that lucky. And I think that's something that this project really touches on is the fact that just because it's not being spoken about in certain contexts where there are, you know, equally large problems to face in terms of things like conflict or poverty of various different kinds, you know, that, that doesn't mean they're not happening. Yeah, so uh, absolutely. I think it just means that we're more aware of it because we have the time to think about it. Whereas other people, you know, actually, depression is much more prevalent in other contexts. Mm. Um, 
but people are so busy worrying about yeah surviving that they're still having depression, but they haven't got time to focus on and deal with it because they have much more important issues um, to think about. I think actually Helen made a point about this earlier, which is that there are there are cultures around the world which do some of this stuff under a different sort of guise. Um, that you know, having a, a family structure or a, a village structure where there is a a greater sense of community or communal support, whatever you want to call it, I, I can imagine lots of those things do potentially insulate you from some of those detrimental factors that we do experience now. And again, I think that touches on this point about this is not a unique problem. This is something that everywhere is dealing with in a range of different ways, some more openly than others. I think that brings us to the end of today's discussion. So thank you both so much for joining me. It's been brilliant to chat to you. And of course, a huge thank you to Herbert Smith Freehills who have kindly hosted us. Finally, to all of you, thank you so much for listening to this episode of MQ Open Mind. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, please get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Please remember, if you've been affected by any of the content on this podcast, the Samaritans are always available on 116 123.